All right, in three, two, one, and we're live. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you were here? How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? What we've got here is failure to communicate. 60% of the time, it works. Every time. That doesn't make sense. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. Now don't call me stuff. What's up, everybody? It's Friday night. It's the DTD podcast, the dads that drink. And tonight we have the most banana story I've ever heard in my life. You guys have been to Six Flags. You've been to Disneyland, but you've never been to Action Park. And if you did, you probably didn't live to talk about it. So tonight we're going to talk about the documentary Class Action Park. It's the first ever feature link documentary to explore the legend, legacy and truth behind a place that long ago entered the realm of myth. To some, New Jersey's infamous action park was the most spectacularly fun amusement park on earth, a place where unruly 1980s teenagers were given free reign to go gonzo on strange contraptions that seemed to violate the laws of common sense and perhaps physics. To others, it was an ill-conceived death trap. One thing is for sure, it's the type of place that will never exist again. Shirking the trappings of nostalgia, the film uses investigative journalism, newly unearthed and never-before-seen documents and recordings, original animations, and interviews with the people who lived it to reveal the true story for the first time. The documentary features an original score by the Halliday Brothers. Class Action Park is produced and directed by Chris Charles and Seth Porges. Porges, I'm sorry, I, after talking, Seth Porges, Authentic Talent and Literary Management's Liz DeCasser, Executive Produce. Now, our guest tonight, Seth Porges, is a director and writer. He's known for Class Action Park, the most insane amusement park ever, and how we invented the world. But as we look through his history, he's worked, been in so many more things that in different roles, Mysteries at the Museum, Beyond the Unknown, The 80s Greatest, What on Earth, Natchez, NASA's Unexplained Files, The 80s, The Decade That Made Us, 101 Objects That Changed the World. He's been in so many things. So please help me welcome Seth Porges. How are you, sir? I'm good. You're, you're reading through the names of all the shows they show in like two in the morning in the History Channel. But I think even the people who are watching them don't even know what those name, what their shows are called. Well, most people that watch this show probably watch those, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and all that talk we had about not messing up the last name and the first thing I do is mess it up. All for naught. There yeah. it is. So names were names were, were born to be butchered. So and I, I told myself over and over, I, I said it and said it and said it. And then, you know, when it, it becomes said so much, it, it becomes meaningless and then you mess it up. So I'm so glad you came on the show tonight. I've told everybody that I know about this movie. It is both hilarious and strikingly scary all at the same time. It is uh, just unbelievable that guys my age, uh, guys that, that watch the show, girls that watch the show, grew up in a time where they didn't give a shit about anything that was going on. And it was the most abundantly clear at this park, Action Park. 
it had names like Action Park, Class Action Park, Traction Park. It opened in May 26th of 1978, and it didn't close down until September 2nd of 1996. Tell me, with everything that happened with this thing, how something like that could stay awake. But first, let's talk about your career, how you got into this, right. how you made this, and what kind of gave you the inspiration behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I went to Action Park a couple times as a kid. I grew up going oh, to all wow. sorts of amusement parks and theme parks. You know, we'd go to, uh, you know, grew up in the D.C. area. We'd go to Disney World, Universal Studios, Busch Gardens, Six Flags, Great Adventure, King's Dominion, all those kind of parks. And on a couple occasions, we made it up to Action Park in New Jersey. And it's very clear from the second you walk up to the gates of Action Park that this place is different. The rules of, of society and law and God and man just don't apply here. When you walk up to the gate of Disneyland, I like to say the very first thing you see is a big like fairy tale castle. And it kind of sets the stage, tells you everything you need to know for like what the world of Disneyland is. When you walk up to Action Park, the very first thing you see is a gigantic water slide that goes in the full vertical roller coaster style loop. It doesn't seem to make any sense how this is possible, how this is allowed, how physics allows this to happen. And it tells you before you even enter the park that this place not only is different, but what you thought about, like how the world works just doesn't apply here. And so, you know, I grew up going to the park a couple times and I had these memories and I had a really hard time kind of squaring these memories with my idea as I got older of how the world is supposed to work, about how things should operate. And just the things I saw, the things I experienced, it didn't really make any sense. And so I wanted to dig in and sort of fact check my memories and figure out was was any of this true? And turns out it, it was. So when you did that, did, did your journalism come where you were just like, I have to tell this story, like people need to know this story? Because when you and I talked before, we talked about like, everyone knows about Disneyland, everyone knows about Universal, all those other ones you mentioned, Bush Gardens. I've never heard of this place. Yeah, it's weird. So many million, they got, it became extraordinarily popular in the 80s during its peak. It got to a million visitors a year. They're pulling in 15,000 people a day on busy days. And if you ask like anybody who grew up during this era in the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, like the whole tri-state area there, they probably have memories of Action Park. It was either something like, that place was awesome, I went there all the time, I got hurt, or I only went there when my summer camp did like an end of summer trip there, there's a lot of that. Or my parents would never let me go there, so I had to like sneak out and find a way to go there. But everybody knew about Action Park. And what's weird is how many people went there, how many people got injured there, and how seldom those people like talk about it. It's almost like this shared trauma but amongst the Northeast where people – I think what happened is people who went there told people about these things and nobody believed them. And so people started kind of thinking it was sort of a myth. Like you hear stories of Action Park – in the same way you hear stories from your drunk friend from New Jersey making stuff up at a bar. It doesn't seem real. And so people might hear these stories, but it feels so mythic. It feels so fake. It feels so legendary that the place itself sort of became a myth, sort of became a legend. And so when I approached it like as a journalist, the first thing I, I realized was how crazy all these stories were, but how little reporting had been done about it, how much of it were these like second and third hand stories, these kind of whispered legends. And I, I saw that as an amazing opportunity to actually, you know, pick up the phone and talk to people and figure out what the heck actually happened here. So let's talk about, because some of the people that you got to tell about this place, like 
uh, Chris Gethard. He is hilarious. He's a stand-up comedian. Yes. You, you got some other people. How did you figure out, is it just people you knew that, that knew about the place or how did you find the people that you were interviewing? Yeah, I've been uh, swimming in the action park waters for, for about a decade now. I've been writing about it, reporting on it, giving lectures on it. I, get, I made a, a short documentary on the topic in 2013. So I've been in this world a long time. And I kind of spent a lot of time just developing sources, tracking down stories, finding out who did what at the park, who had crazy stories to tell. So when it was re we were ready to start shooting this movie last year, I had hundreds of people, you know, I could have spoken to, uh, you know, so many people who either worked at the park, went to the park, had some connection to the park. And so, it, it, you know, it was a matter of just kind of pruning it down to just a couple because you can only fit so many people into a right. movie. But it really like finding these things is just a result of reporting, speaking to people, you know, finding the secret Facebook groups that Vernon High School alumni are all members of, like that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, tracking down somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. Uh, spending a lot of time tracking people down and just kind of earning their trust to the point where they're willing to talk. And, you know, as you're watching it with Chris, he talks about when you he talks about the first time he went there. And I'm pretty sure he was the one that his parents would never take him. But he his neighbors took him and and his parents yes. were like, hey. that's a common story. My parents would yeah. not want to allow me to go there. He so said they looked find, at him and you know, said. Good decisions. They today, beg, man. borrow, or steal. Yeah, people like beg, borrow, steal. They find any way they can to get right. there because you go to school. He talks about this in the movie. You go to school, and some kid would come in at the end of the summer and have a bunch of scars on him, and be like, "What the hell happened?" And be like, "I went to Action Park," and suddenly you're like, "That guy's badass. I want to be like that guy." And if you don't have the guts to go to Action Park, well, you're 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 nothing, right? And right. this is like I think a lot of people who are younger today and perhaps not from New Jersey uh, and maybe Boston don't understand is how much like how fragile the sense of like being a man was to a young man in this area at this time how important it was to like not be a fucking pussy how important it was to show that you could do these things right, right. and it wasn't just action park you know people would be a building stupid homemade BMX ramps that were gonna hurt them and jumping yep. off of them. You're doing all sorts of like ill-advised things because if you don't, you're you're it's like in Rebel Without a Cause, you're a chicken, you know? And nobody wanted to be a chicken. Yeah. So what was funny about him is he's describing the first time he goes there and and he says that he got to the front and he looks over and he sees the full loop water ride and he said shit just got real. And he was like the well, fucking like, well, place exists. It's like, this is real. This shit's real. Because up until that point, you've heard these legends. People are whispering about them in the halls of school. It enters like the canon of like, you know, the, like before the internet, kids would just kind of whisper about, in the same way they'd, 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 they'd trade legends that like the life serial kid Mikey's head blew up after he ate Pop Rocks and drank a Coke. Right. You know, there's all these kind of like the school, the schoolyard pipeline, the grapevine of the schoolyard was full of all of these legends. You never knew what was real. You hear stuff like, oh, this kid died because he had the wrong pressure point hit. You hear stuff like that, right? <laughs> and you never knew what to believe. And Action Park felt like that. This thing that you're vaguely scared of but doesn't feel real. It feels like a ghost story is what it feels like. The kind of thing you tell like a campfire with a flashlight. But then you go to Action Park and you see that looping water slide and then you realize, holy shit, this place is real. This shit is real. Yeah. So when you went there, because you, you said you went there a couple times, first time mm -hmm. you see it, what's in your brain when you see it? It scrambles your brain. I must have been like 
five or six years old the first time I went there. I only went there probably two or three times. I was super young. And when you're so young, it's and you go to so many amusement parks, it's really strange because when you go to like Disney World, there's a lot of terror that's all kind of imagineered and, and created as part of the storytelling process. So you go into Tower of Terror and you're told this elevator is gonna drop, you might die, there's ghosts. Back of your mind, you know this is all a story. You don't believe it's real, but you're kind of nervous because you're so young. You can't really tell the difference. The line between reality and fantasy is so blurry, but that's all fantasy. In Action Park, you get there, and the same thing, the line between reality and fantasy is blurry, but that's all reality. But you can't really tell the difference. So you go there and you know this is weird. There's something chaotic and kinetic and violent and dangerous about this place. But it's so hard for somebody who's so young to understand just how messed up it is. And kids who grew up going there all the time, it begins to feel just kind of normal to them. And I think that's the most amazing thing is people who've never been there, especially younger people, they're like, how could this place have possibly existed? And you ask people who grew up in New Jersey in the 80s, they're like, oh, yeah, that was Saturday. That was Sunday. Point to a scar. <laughs> Oh yeah, Fourth of July, Memorial Day. You know, it was just like what it was normal. It was just normal for them. And so, <clears throat> kind of walk us through through the park. Like, where do you go first? Like, you mentioned Disneyland. So when you walk up, I've been to Disneyland, Universal, all those kind of things. Yeah. When you walk to Disneyland, you see the castle. Uh, when you go to Universal, you see the globe and and all that kind of stuff. So as you walk in. Where do you go first? What do you do? Like, how yeah. do you pick where you're going to so, go in this labyrinth? How, how do you choose your own adventure? So right. think about Action Park, it's important to understand. It, it, it was the summertime attraction at a ski resort. And basically what happened was the owner had the ski resort and he was like, this is a ski resort in New Jersey. It's open for like three months of the year. We have to find a way to make money in the off season. So he's like, I'm going to start building rides. So they built the Alpine slide, they built some water slides, they built a bunch of attractions. They try to build this like summertime uh, thing so they could turn it into an all year resort, primarily at first so they could sell condos. That was sort of the goal. So what's important to understand about Action Park is it's built on the side of a mountain. So a lot of these water slides, it's not like when you go to a, a normal water park and a water slide is like a tower and then it's like built how it's gonna go. These are just like tubes thrown on the side of the mountain. Whatever the mountain does, that's what the ride is, right? So when you go to Action Park, the very first thing you notice is that there's a major highway that runs right through the middle of the park. And then it separates the park in half, just kind of bisects the park. On one half of the park, you have Motor World. And that's all these go-karts, these speedboats, these racing cars, all those kind of attractions. The other part, you got Water World. That's all the water slides, but also the Alpine slide is up there too. So the first thing you see is here's a highway running through the middle of the park. What the heck? That shouldn't be. So typically, you'd start your day either going to Water World or to the Alpine Center, which is where the Alpine slide was. And typically, people would spend the first part of their day there, getting wet, splashing around. And then sometime in the afternoon, like 4 or 5 p.m., it was pretty typical for people to start migrating over the Motor World start getting a couple drinks in them because the Motor World area was right next to this massive beer tent. So everybody get liquored up and then drive speedboats and race cars while inebriated. And Action Park became very notorious for basically being like drunk driving the ride is what it basically was. And, and we, I want to talk about a couple things on that. So from everything that I read, everything that I saw in the documentary, um, they weren't really selective about who they served alcohol to either. Like, No, no, it, not at all. And also keep in mind, a lot of this time the drinking age was 18. So it was younger in the first place. But even beyond that, like 
No. And also, like, if, typically, you know, you'd be, like, a 15-year-old dragged there by your 18-year-old brother kind of thing. And your 18-year-old brother would go buy a bunch of beers and bring you over to you. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. And then people just – lot of, a lot of just younger people were getting drunk. Action Park had uh, one of the first microbreweries in the country. The owner kind of tried to take credit for kickstarting the whole microbrewery explosion. He was obsessed with this um, sense of, like, authentic German beer. That his big Oktoberfest celebration. That's the big thing at the park. So he went to Germany. He had an entire brewery dismantled, shipped over to New Jersey, including the brewmaster, who, according to the owner's son's book, uh, had previously been Adolf Hitler's personal brewmaster. Uh, so they they bring this guy over. They bring all his his, his family. They open up a German bakery on site. Um, they bring over, basically they say everything but the water came from Germany and they create this massive beer making operation with this huge, huge, like Oktoberfest tent. <clears throat> and they're just serving, 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 serving. And people walk 10 feet from there, get into the Lola carts. These are the racing carts. These aren't like go-karts like you'd find at like a roadside attraction these days. These were Lola brand. They made Formula One, like Grand Prix race car race cars. These were the same race cars like professional race car drivers would use. Go up to 60 miles per hour. Kids get liquored up. They drive these things. They'd ignore the rules of the road. they just go off the road. they chase down employees like bullfighters, somebody says in their movie. At night, the employees would get liquored up. they take these cars onto the highway that ran through the middle of the park. That's what Action Park was. Golly. And they they had messed with what I saw was they had messed with the uh, limiters and stuff and uh, made them mm -hmm. go faster. But but then that caused uh, gas to like spill and, and get on people. Yeah. And so so the thing about Action Park rides, it's important to understand is there's the way you're supposed to ride them. And then there's the way the employees have figured out how to ride them. This isn't just about the, the racing cars. This is about all sorts of rides. The Alpine Slide, for example. The employees had taken some of the sleds, they had filed down the wheels so they would go faster. These were all the white sleds. And then if you were like a guest, you could pay extra to ride one of the extra fast sleds. These sleds, which would like basically guarantee the fly off and get you injured. Um, there's this thing that was um, sort of like a skydiving simulator, a giant fan. You'd wear like a parachute suit and you'd kind of hover, right? It was a thing called the Erodium, came from Germany, one of the first of its type in the country. Well, if you're doing it with like the normal suit as a patron would, you're floating like five feet above. It's no big deal. It's a nice calm thing and a big fan. What the employees did was they fashioned their own kind of special streamlined suits. I think they used the, the foam from mats at various rides. And they create these wingsuits. So this building, it'd be a big fan. It'd be like a donut hole in the middle of the building for the air for the airstream to shoot up at. Well, the employees in their suits, they would fly so high, they would fly above the building's roof through the donut hole. So you'd be walking around, you'd see a kid flying 20 feet in the air above the building, and he fell out of the airstream, he'd just fall off. You know, this kind of thing's happening like almost every ride. There's like a way the employees modified the ride to just make it crazier, and that's how they would have fun. And, and there was really no, as far as I can tell, there was really no management that, that kind of oversaw it. It was pretty much like Thunderdome. Uh, well, the, the, the managers were young. They were like 16, 17 years old often and be in charge of like literally a third of the park. Uh, you know, it really was – the owner himself was somebody who sort of had this very chaotic uh, disdain for rules and regulations and administrations. And that kind of trickled down into the way the park was run where it's like, oh, yeah, you're 17. You're in charge of a third of the park. 
That's just what it was, right? You're like a senior in high school and you're managing an amusement park. It's like, I mean, like what life was for these kids. And it's only so much you could do, especially considering just the clientele and how rowdy and rambunctious and violent and drunk and chaotic they were. A lot of the employees were, you know, tried their best. I'll just say they, they tried their best. When you're 16 years old, there's a pack of 30 kids swinging punches. You're just like, no, thank you, man. Right. So it's not that they, they didn't want to regulate, but like, good luck trying to regulate. I spoke to one guy uh, who's in our movie, the story didn't make it in the movie, who was a security guard at the park. And in, I think it was 1986, the New York Giants all came to the park to celebrate winning the Super Bowl. And they just start going crazy. They're celebrating, they're liquored up. They're literally picking up ride attendants, throwing them off the cliffs, throwing them into rides, starting fights. It's like 40 New York Giants. You're a 16 year old security guard. What are you going to do, right? What are you going to do against a Super Bowl winning New York Giants? They eventually had to eject the whole team. So, well, and, and I think at one point, wasn't the head of security like 17 years old? The head of security for the whole park yeah. was 17, right? Well, or like the managers of, of whole sections of the park would be like 17 years old. Um, that's just like what the place was. It was really like, oh, you've been here a couple seasons. Okay, I guess you're in charge now. <laughs> And so you, you say that it, it had a different kind of clientele um, yes. than, than most parks. Everything that I read about it, though, it was like $27 to get in the park. It depends when. It was real cheap in the early days, but let's just say that it almost didn't matter because it was so easy to sneak into the park. Okay. Uh, there was a, like a, com a common scam would be you just kind of walk around the parking lot and they give you wristbands. And depending on what day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, whatever, it'd be a different colored wristband. You just scoop up the torn up wristband, suddenly got one for every day, come back anytime you want, right? Or resell them to people. Or, you know, remember, this is built on the side of a ski resort, like on a wooded mountainside, super easy to sneak in the backside. Um, the admissions, you know, in its early days, it might have been like five bucks. It was really cheap in the early days, probably up like 20 or something by the time it closed. But it was also a bunch of promotions where it's like trading a couple Coke cans or Pepsi cans again for free. It was a real affordable destination. It was an affordable destination for people uh, from, from the cities, from New York, from Newark, from Philly, from all these areas. It was a day trip. You know, if you didn't, it, it was it was kind of the only water park in the area. So it would draw these people in, people looking to cool down. And they'd come in, uh, guns a-blazing sometimes, and the park really didn't do much to diminish it. You know, um, one in the early days of paintball, the park got a bunch of paintball guns and thought maybe this would be a cool attraction. So the park decided they were going to organize, uh, I think it was like Queens versus Brooklyn or Queens versus Bronx paintball thing. So it's literally like, okay, who hears from the Queens? You're on one team. Who hears from the Bronx? You're another team. Go at it. Within five minutes, they're pistol whipping each other. You know, oh that's just like what Action Park was like. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. it's it's insane to me that that there was never any control like like the police didn't get involved or it was like I said, it's yeah. like where everyone was worried to even go there. I got a good example. So I think a, a, a fun story sort of says how little people kind of thought the laws applied in Action Park. Um, one day, a guy, there was a prisoner jail not too far away, and a guy escapes. And he's hiding out in one of the condos that's near the park. And he's getting really bored. And so he decides to sneak into the back of Action Park to spend the day because he doesn't want to, you know, he's on the lam, he's getting bored. I guess he's running out of things to watch the TV. So he decides to sneak into Action Park, ride some rides. 
Um, just I think in like when you're in action park, there are no laws. This, this police don't apply here. Like the law of man does not apply here. He of course eventually got caught waiting in line for the Colorado River ride. Oh, so <laughs> yeah, it, it, but yeah, it, no uh, laws, man. And, and and that's the whole thing. So you said that <clears throat> what they were going to try and do was kind of build condos and stuff. So I guess that that got done. The condos got built and everything. Oh yeah, there's a huge condo still there called Great Gorge Village. Yeah, I mean the the park began as a ski resort. Right. And they wanted to find a way to make it an all-season resort uh, because they could sell more condos that way. Uh, right. So they started building rides and, and water attractions. And then Action Park itself became sort of the main attraction. It became the big draw because it became this really almost first-of-its-kind type place in many ways. It was – I think this is something that um, is kind of lost to a lot of people because it was one of the very first modern water parks that had ever been built. You know, prior to this, you had like people at old swimming holes, maybe, uh, you know, swimming pools and whatnot. But you didn't have like a water park with water slides, like Wet and Wild or places like that. The first water parks in the country started opening up in the 70s. You had Wet and Wild, you had Schlitterbahn, you had Dizzy's River Country, and you had Action Park, which opened in 78. Those were the very first four. And it was sort of the wild west of water parks. Nobody knew what a water park was. So every ride they're building is by definition experimental. You couldn't just go to like a convention and buy a bunch of off-the-shelf rides. So they're trying all these things out, and what got built there oftentimes is sort of uh, be a reflection of the owner's personality. They're like, I want to build a park that looks like this, and they build a park that looks like this. Well, the guy who owned Action Park, he had a very distinct personality, and the rides reflected that. And and so was he well-known back then? The, yeah, he the was a, he's a pretty big business guy. So his name was Gene Mulvihill. Uh, he had been a, a pretty successful sort of like mutual fund and penny stock pioneer. He eventually got banned for life by the SEC for various fraud-related uh, you know, white-collar crime type stuff. Um, he had a company called Mayflower Securities that the, the eventual president of Mayflower Securities is a guy named Bob Brennan, who would rise to infamy shortly soon after. When uh, After Mayflower shut down, it took one of the old Mayflower offices, hung a new shingle on it. That became First Jersey Securities. First Jersey became probably the single most infamous penny stock pump and stuff like wolf of wall street style scam there was and gene and, and brennan were buds and business partners and all sorts of hostels including action park and um and, and gene was involved with he was he was involved with lots and <laughs> lots of businesses he was an early guy in the mri space he had a robotic parking garage startup he built he had a ride design firm uh he had the parks the ski resorts he was just kind of golf resort he was just kind of a constant entrepreneur hustler kind of guy but action park was the most interesting thing he did clearly but also sort of the purest distillation of who he was as a person and it, at one point you talk about all the businesses that he had and stuff at one point uh, no one would insure his park so he just made a insurance company yeah it, it, it was to some degree that he had a hard time getting insurance but more that he didn't want to for insurance so he decided to create his own fake insurance company um, basically he he the, the park and the ski resort were partially on state-owned land and he had a lease and one of the terms of his lease was that he had to have valid insurance which makes sense he didn't really believe in the concept of, of insurance he was sort of this like hyper proto libertarianish kind of guy who thought that if you got hurt it was somehow your fault that he should be responsible he should have to pay insurance premiums and the insurance and we'll company should have to pay you got hurt. Yeah. So he decides to create a fake insurance company based in the Cayman Islands called London and World Assurance, 
which sounds real, I guess. Um, very good. In order to ensure it. And yeah, exactly. And it really existed as nothing more than a couple pieces of paper. It was nothing. It was just trash. It was nothing. But he was really um, good about kind of making lawsuits go away. And he had to be because his legal liability, his, his financial exposure was so much because he didn't have insurance. So he had to really be good at making these things disappear when people got hurt. Well, and and I'm sure he had a team of lawyers just like everywhere. And and that that seems to be present in a lot. And like I said, we'll get into that a little later when we start talking about the deaths and stuff. I mean, the um, movie's called Class Action Park. So yeah, yeah. You take that for what you will. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you had Class Action Park. You had Traction Park. Uh, you, accident Park. Fracture park. park. Yeah. So you had all these things. And, and I think... If I'm if I'm not wrong, that a lot of that stuff with all those mythos and everything that came behind it made it what it was, like made it even more popular, made it like it was yeah. it was Xanax. Yeah, the owner owner realized that every time the owner realized every time there was a newspaper headline about somebody getting injured at the park and attendance rose. Um, he realized that he realized really quickly that the danger and the chaos were a big part of the appeal of Action Park. He knew this. Everybody knew this. And that's what's so fascinating to me about Action Park, amongst many other things, is that the danger, the reputation of Action Park was no secret. Everybody knew. You know, you had people whose parents wouldn't take them because they knew the place was dangerous. Like, everybody knew. Um, but it didn't keep people away. So it drew them in. It became a play, like a proving ground. A, a, it became an extreme sport, kind of. Um, and that's kind of amazing. I mean, it, it says so much about us. I think that's that's really interesting because I think people, it forces people to kind of look inward and ask themselves, would I have gone there? Uh, would I have gone there if an older kid was really busting my balls and forcing me to? Probably, you know? And I, I think even more than that with, I, I don't, well, one, I don't think that that, that uh, theme park exists um, today. Uh, no. There, there's just no way. And two. No, no. Yeah. And two, I, I think that, like you said, I think even if you weren't getting your balls busted by someone, you're still going to be like, man, I got to see this place. I got to see if it's I, I just got to see if it's real. Um, and and that's yeah. because you're excluded from the conversations that are going on at school, the 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 end of summer things, all all those things that you're not included in by not being or taking a part in this. And I'm sure there were many parents that were you know, like you said, dead set against it and then make their neighbors take them. And then kind of the onus is off them, but you still or, get to or, or, or it's, it's, I mean, or as many kids would, would not tell their parents when they went, if you're local, just go with your friends, ride your bike, whatever. But I think it became a place where like a shocking number of people I spoke to, they, they, their story of going to action park was something <clears> along the lines of, I went with my cousin and my parents never knew kind of thing. You know, it was a lot of that um, because so many people know when I went, I was actually really curious as to what, you know, I was really young. I, my parents took me and I was really curious um, why they took me. And so I, I called my mom not too long ago and I asked her, I was like, you know, when we got to the park, it was really clear what this reputation was. Uh, you heard people in real time whisper these legends, like they point at the looping water slide and say some kid got stuck there. They point another slide and say some kid died there. Some kid got decapitated there. And you just hear these things in real time. 
And my dad even, I remember him saying like, oh, they call this place accident park. It's like a joke. So like knowing all this and especially like how risk adverse my parents were, I asked my mom, like, what, what were you thinking? Like, why'd you take us there? What she told me was they advertised on TV and it made it look like a really kind of family friendly place to take your kids. So I'm like, okay, that explains the first time we went. <laughs> why did we go back? <laughs> you know, she didn't have a good answer for that. <laughs> I guess it was a really fun place. You you yeah. lost a lot of trust I in think, your mom that day after she was like, well, uh, but also like, I think everybody, I think underestimated danger because we all sort of maybe less than, but still to some degree, uh, sort of took it for granted that if this is like something you're allowed to do, it must be safe. If this is a business, if this is an amusement park, there must be regulation. There must be safety checks. There must be people paying attention. And there was not, I mean, put a lot of blind faith into these places, into these businesses for our safety. When you strap yourself into a roller coaster at, at Disney World, you're putting a lot of blind faith in, into their reputation. This idea that these people know what they're doing and that this ride was designed in a way to have a good time, but not to actually hurt us. And the employees are well trained and that this ride has been tested. None of that was going on at Action Park. Right. And I think we sort of assumed it was because, you know, keep in mind, this is decades after Disneyland had opened. And this was just a couple of years after Disney World had opened. Those parks, I think, really sanitized people's perceptions about what an amusement park was. Prior to that, maybe amusement parks were thought of as a little bit more like carny attractions and sideshows and, and, and shady boardwalks where maybe a couple screws are missing from that roller coaster and you don't want to go on it. But after Disneyland comes around, people begin to largely view amusement parks as safe, sanitized, highly controlled environments. And I think that reputation was so strong that non-Disney parks, places like Action Park could pop up and people would assume, oh, it's like Disneyland. It has to be as safe as Disneyland when it wasn't. Right. And and from the area that you were from, you had like Bush Gardens within pretty close distance. Mm -hmm. You had... Yeah, I we went there all the time. Yeah. Kings of Manhattan. Yeah. So even those that you see, Bush Gardens and, you, you know, you had went to Walt Disney. I, I never went to any of these. This is no joke. I never went to Disneyland until I was, man, 20 or 21 years old. That was like the first time I'd ever seen Disneyland. Um, same with Universal. Better as an, it's better as an adult. They're more fun as adults, I think. Uh, you know, but I think that to see it through a, a, a younger yeah. set of eyes, I mean, it might make it a little more important or impactful when you get there, because as I, you know, going there, being an older person, I, I'm looking for certain rides, you know, when, like you said, when you're a kid, you're looking for anything, you'll ride anything. When, when you're older, you're like, ah, let me ride this. And I don't know if I trust that one. Cause I remember going to like universal and um, going over to islands of adventure and they have the free fall drop. Uh, I think it's like uh, not the Spider-Man ride, like the Dr. Doom free fall ride. Well, I had ridden one of those. Yeah. I had ridden one of those in California uh, with my wife at, at uh, I think it was Bush Gardens. Maybe it was Knott's Berry. I can't remember, but I had ridden one and it, I mean, it scared the shit out of me and I was a grown man and I was like, nope, not that ride. So, I mean, it automatically took it off the, the checklist for me. I'm like, nope, never riding one of those again. So I think as an adult, yeah. it did a little different going there when I think that I would have maybe tried other stuff being younger. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. Those rides. It's, 
We take it for granted. <laughs> we take it for granted. Yeah, you know, it's right to mess you up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they will. And yeah. and it's been great because we, uh, you know, I have three daughters, and we've taken them ever since they were very young to theme parks. So they've already been to, they've been to Universal, they've been to Disney World, they've been to Disneyland, they've been to Bush Gardens, they've been to uh, Knott's Berry Farm. So they've been to a lot of them, and they've. You know, and and they're already on roller coasters and all that kind of stuff. At, at young ages, they're riding the smaller roller coasters. My older ones are riding the bigger roller coasters. So I'm very happy about that, though, that, that they can enjoy these parks still. And, it, you know, they're still, I think they're seeing it from a different lens than, than like the action park people or the people in the beginnings of these theme parks. But I'm very glad that they're still around. And, and they're they're unbelievable in some of the stuff that they do now. Yeah, so I love I love going to like classic amusement parks that still have kind of a sense of history about them. Like Knott's Berry Farm, you just mentioned, is is really cool to me because they have uh, some rides that have been there just forever. You know, Knott's Berry Farm predates Disneyland and has what's credited, I think they claim, is like the first modern dark ride. And you can still ride like places like Dollywood too are really cool to me because they have like a bunch of you know they have new roller coasters and modern rides. But then they've got the old stuff. And I love parks that really feel like this kind of tapestry of generations and decades where you've got like some, okay, you got a couple kind of cutting edge, whatever, but it's like that ride's been there since 1950s. And Disneyland has that too. That's what's kind of cool about places like that. You got like the Haunted Mansion still. It's been there forever. You got, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's been there forever. Small World, been there forever. Um, and these parks that kind of mix the old and the new, I think they're the best. Those are, those are really, really fun to me. Yeah, I'm I'm in the Dallas area, and um, we have Six Flags here. So, um, mm -hmm. and it has, like yeah. you said, it has a mixture of old and new. It's it's big on like the super. That's the original. Ride. That's the original Six Flags, right? That's uh, that's where yeah. the term Six Flags comes from. Is all the flags right. over Texas? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they have rides that that you know my kids ride that are like these swings that go up in the air like two hundred feet and swing out, and it's just a chain in uh, a swing. Some of those ones. You see like YouTube videos of those, the, the swing rides now, they build those things higher and higher and higher until I'm just like, I get vertigo just looking at it. Uh, those those terrify me. I, I'd still do them though. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, you know, um, yeah, they're fun. They terrify me and I'm not going to ride them. So I I don't have anything yeah. to prove. So <laughs> uh, I, I won't get on them. But um so in talking to this, let's, let's go back to the park. And, uh, you know, I have some photos that we talked about and, and I just want to go over some and you tell the best stories that you know from each ride that we're looking at. So let's bring it up. Okay. So we talked about this. This was the uh, note that was up for the Alpine ride. It says, if you don't sign me a uh, release form, you cannot ride the Alpine slide. Parents must okay. sign kids. So, that that sign, the release form tells me that exactly when that sign was. That sign okay. was put up there in 1998 after Action Park closed. Okay. Uh, when it was taken taken over by Intrawest, which is the company that purchased Action Park after it closed, renamed it Mountain Creek. They kept the Alpine slide open for one one summer, and they forced people to wear a helmet and to sign a waiver. There was no waivers when Action Park had the Alpine slide, and you did not have to be six years old to ride it. Um, in our movie, we briefly show a newspaper clip from a girl who lost a finger on the ride who was just three years old. Uh, she was riding in the lap with her parents. And one of the most amazing things happened after the movie came out is this person 
saw the movie, saw this clip flash on the screen and reached out to us and was so excited to have her uh, finger loss featured in the movie. And she sent me a video showing me uh, what her fingerless hand looks like today. And she told me that she like tells people about this story about her losing her finger on this amusement park ride. And people like think she's making it up and she's so, cause she couldn't find any newspaper articles about it. And so she asked us to send her that clip and she's so excited to have this in the air as kind of proof of her story. And and what actually, do you know what actually took her finger off? Yeah, she, well, first we should say what the Alpine slide was. Okay. It was uh, basically a track. A lot of people think it was made of concrete or cement, uh, but it was actually made of asbestos mostly, just kind of built into the side of the mountain. And you take these kind of toboggans uh, up a ski lift. That's that's not, you take a yeah, toboggan I'm up a ski lift. It. There you go. And it would, yeah, you take a toboggan up a ski lift. And unfortunately, it was very rather common for people to knock their toboggan off the ski lift and attempt to hit people below uh, as sort of a cruel game of like whack-a-mole, just target practice like that. Yeah, it goes directly over the track. So you get to the top and you'd be greeted by photos bearing bloody pictures of previous injuries on this ride, basically warning you this ride is legitimately dangerous. And it was. Uh, this is a ride where people are constantly constantly getting knocked off the track, falling off their slide, flying off of it into rocks. That's how one kid died. Um, or kind of just getting massive skin abrasions and skin burns. That was probably the most common injury at the park. On a busy weekday, this ride alone was likely to injure hundreds of people a day, every single day on this one ride alone. It was, it was that dangerous. Um, but that girl, how she lost her finger, was she a three-year-old? She just reached her hand down and it went over and it placed it off, you know? Oh, wow. And, yeah. uh, you know, we can talk about that where you were saying injured hundreds of people a weekend. They, they Okay, so there's a story about the ambulances that they were coming there so often, like five, six times a day, that they actually told them, we're not going to come out anymore. Yeah, it, well... It's more than that, but they were just overwhelming the town's emergency responders, the first responders. And so they were basically, they were like a meeting and they're like, you guys gotta help out. You guys gotta get your own ambulances. So the park ended up buying at least two ambulances uh, just to handle, handle the injuries. But very few people ended up in those ambulances considering the number of injuries total. Most people were treated on site. Uh, they had this infirmary set up by the Alpine Slide where a lot of the injuries were, where they take you in and they sand you into a circle that was drawn on the floor. And if you manage to stay in a circle while they treated your wounds, you won a prize uh, because it was so painful. What they would do is they took this like orange Windex bottle called iodine and alcohol, but they didn't tell you what it was. It's just this weird orange concoction. They'd spray your wounds. And it was the most painful thing these people had ever felt. And nobody could stay in that circle. Um, Judd Apatow, the, the director and producer tweeted, uh, that the scene in the 40 year old virgin where Steve Carell gets his chest waxed and is like mm -hmm. screaming it, that scream he said was inspired by the screaming of people getting their wounds treated at the Alpine slide infirmary. Wow. That's so, uh yeah, that's quite a memory that stays with you then if, if you'll put yeah. it in a, in a movie. So let's move on through some of the rides. Uh, we've got, um, go ahead. Cannibal falls. Yeah, so that's actually, I can tell because it's black and not blue. That's actually a later rebuild of the ride that wasn't in the original Action Park days. The original one is blue and actually quite a bit higher up. Uh, it was about 10, at least 10 feet over the water. And you basically go into the slide and it'd be 
basically underground. This rebuild wasn't underground. The original one was underground. You go into this, it was just pitch black underground. You wouldn't know where to go. And it hit a really sharp turn so hard that people would slam into the turn and get injured. But then it would just shoot you out the side of a mountain like a cannonball was sort of the idea. And you just fly over the mountain and you just fall into the water like 10 feet. And uh, it was cold. It was ice cold. This part of the park, the water were these natural springs, more chlorinated, uh, mountain fed, fed springs, just super, super cold in the shade. People go into shock because the water's so cold. And it was really deep there. It's about 18 or 20 feet. Uh, so people just fall in, even if they were good swimmers, they just kind of go into shock and need to be pulled out all the time, every day. And so looking at these, when you say that this was on the rebuild, these look pretty high off the water. So I can just yeah. imagine what the originals were. Yeah, the original ones, if you ever look for photos of you see they're blue, those are original. If you see they're black, that's the rebuild. Okay. And here it is, the info. Oh, boy. Lord and Lord and Lord. The Cannonball okay. Loop. Let's get uh, into this. Cannonball Loop. Yeah. Cannonball Loop here uh, was its own sort of myth. Uh, this idea of a water slide and then close to water slide that go into a loop. And this photo is a little deceptive because it's really hard to see the set scale, like how big it is. It almost looks miniature because you have these people in the front kind of close to you that really uh, distort your, your sense of size. But that thing is really tall. That loop itself is probably 30 feet up into the air. So you climb the staircase, you go down this loop, and you see how you just kind of hit the ground. And then you just try to make it over the top. And a lot of people wouldn't make it through. A lot of people wouldn't make it all the way. Or some people get stuck. They eventually had to build a hatch to extricate people who got stuck or couldn't make it all the way through. People got all sorts of messed up in this thing. Um, they, When they first built it, they had insufficient padding. So people are going in, they're getting their mouths busted up, they hit the top, they just fall face first on the tube and they lose teeth, bloody mouths. So they put in more padding, send some more kids down. Those kids come down, their mouths are fine, but they got lacerations all over their body. Nobody knows why. So they open up the slide and they find the teeth from the first group that got embedded in the padding and was just eating into these kids like some sort of monster. It's digesting them, just pure horror movie stuff. Now, when, <clears throat> when they first started that, and they sent the kind of crash test dummies down. They were coming out like decapitated, uh, yeah. in half, missing arms, missing legs. And after they kind of went through that phase, I guess the owner got the idea to offer $100 to any of his employees that would ride it and test it out. Yeah. Well, I was actually corrected. It was only $100 for the older kids. Younger kids got 50 bucks. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it was. this is a great example of how they would test and build these rides. They have an idea. This ride actually came from a doodle on a napkin that the owner himself had. Uh, they build this sort of circle on a napkin, hire some local welders. They build this thing. They send some <laughs> test dummies down. They come out all sorts of messed up, not going to work. So they start tinkering with things like the water pressure, the angle, the height, until the test dummies are coming out more or less intact. So next thing they got to do is send some kids down. So the owner stands by the slide, waves $100 bills in there. Anybody with the guts to go down is 100 bucks richer, uh, or the younger kids, 50 bucks richer. And that's how they tested out this ride, is they would just use these teenage employees as guinea pigs. I can't imagine Disneyland's doing that. Right, right. Uh, so how did you find out? Th th this is interesting to me. How did you find out? Because in the movie, it talks about the $100 and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. How did you find out that it was 50 for other people? And like, how does that come about where they go, wait, wait, wait a minute? Well, I just spoke to former employees uh, who had 
<laughs> who had been there and gotten and taken the bounty, you know? Um, I, I spoke, I mean, somebody in our movie talks about, says I'm a hundred dollars richer because uncle Gene, they called him uncle Gene, uh, paid a hundred bucks to employees who tested out the loop. And I spoke to other employees who were like, I was only 14. So they paid me 50 bucks and they're still bitter about it to this day. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think I would be too, yeah. but th this is yeah. amazing. And, and even after they closed it down, it stayed up. Right. I mean, it didn't get taken down for quite a while. Yeah. No, this thing, um, it was open sporadically over the years. So the, the wide, the, the story that's out there is that it was only open for a couple months, the summer of 85, but that's not actually true. It was open sporadically for years into the nineties. Um, they just never could get it to work right. The owner was still into the nineties offering hundred bucks to employees to test it out as they still continue to try to perfect it. It kind of, to me is like, he viewed it almost as like his magnum opus. It's like problem he had to solve where he's just continuing over the years trying to get this thing to work. And to me, that's so fascinating. This idea that this thing that clearly should never have been built clearly is a bad idea. He was still sending kids down it for like 10 years, trying to get it to work, trying to find a way to make it work. When I was there, it was the 90s. And there they were, or at least the very late 80s. And I remember seeing kids go down it. And I was told it was only open to employees. So those must have been employees who were paid 100 bucks. Uh, they were still still trying to make it work, and then they would sporadically open up to the public. Didn't stay open long because that thing hurt apparently. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't seem like he really cared if people really got hurt, as long as they uh, had fun or walked away and told a story about his place. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Okay, so we have uh, once again we have go karts, um, and these so those are the dune buggies. Actually, Th those are those are the dune buggies. So, so they're not considered a go kart though. These are like ATVs. No. Yeah, yeah. So the Motor World had a bunch of motorized contraptions. You had kind of you know normalish go karts, and you had the Lola cars, which were like Grand Prix racing cars. Mm -hmm. Then you had speed boats, which were a motor boat, just like here's a motor boat driving around a pond. Then they had the dune buggies here. The dune buggies, uh, yeah, the, the, those were the dune buggies. They were they were fun. They were one of the very first rides at Action Park too. Oh, really? And and so what yeah. was the? I, I guess they messed with the engines with these, just like they did with the other, and they could get them going faster. Yeah, they messed with. It. I'm trying to remember the exact story. I had a really good story about these where uh, people would just like. I think I could have the story wrong. But they would drive these things around in a way that would just spray mud on people who are waiting in line. And so it would go on. So you just like intentionally just like kick dirt in the face of people who are waiting in line, which isn't a nice thing to do. Yeah. But as we'll get into it, there was a lot of places here. I, I read something about the Alpine slide where you were saying the toboggans, but I also read that. Um, it was a big thing to spit from the, uh, Oh yeah. Spitting spit I remember that. People below you. And so yeah, you do, you mess with them. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they were coming down, they, they wouldn't sometimes use the brake cause they were trying to get past people before they spit on them. But then I also heard that the brakes didn't work that well. Yeah. Those things were not in a good state of repair often. Uh, the common story, which is true is that some of the sleds, like the brakes just didn't work. And some sleds are basically stuck in a brake position. And if you imagine what happens when like a single tracked ride, those two people share a space. So you got somebody who's like brake is stuck and then barreling down behind them with somebody, their brake's not working. 
something's got to get right and there's also the other thing about that ride the alpine slide it's important to know is somebody in our movie puts it it wasn't designed to keep you on if you didn't know the exact specific places where the break where to redistribute your body weight just kind of like how to ride it you're gonna fly off if you went at full speed or close to full speed and you didn't know how to move your body and how to break you were going to fly off and that's why you had hundreds of injuries a day because that's just what happens and let's talk about one of the deaths since we're on the alpine slide um we talked about a guy that had been riding the alpine slide flew off hit his head on a rock and it put him into a coma for right. a, a, about three weeks a week or so yeah yeah it was several yeah it was a while yeah and then so he, then he passed away yeah and then when he passed away the family kind of came to look for um reimbursement and i had heard now if this is true that um they were told that that the slide didn't kill their son that the rock did yeah the what, one of the more interesting things in our movie was sort of unraveling how the park responded to this death and likely other deaths too um and how they sort of uh, obfuscated and um dodged blame from it uh and you know, and this death occurred in a period when the park did not have actual insurance. So, so we found the family of of the kid who was killed. His name was George Larson, uh, and we spoke to him. And they told us that in the 39 years since the accident, nobody had ever reached out to them to ask him what happened. And we found that quite shocking. And what we found was that the narrative that had been put out there by the park uh, was a little bit fictitious and um, a little bit cruel as well. Uh, the park put out this narrative that yes, he that the, the ride was not to blame, that the rocks that hit his head were somehow to blame. But other than that, they lied and basically told everybody that he was a park employee when he wasn't. And the point of that, the myth of Action Park, was that this park is gonna give you the tools that have the time of your life without guardrails. And if you get hurt, it's because you don't know your own limits. It's like you're skiing, you know? You should know what kind of ski slope you can handle. And if you don't, you're responsible, right? And that was sort of the myth of Action Park. We're gonna give you the tools to have as much fun as you want, but you have to know your own limits. And so the story that they put out there, he was a park employee, was that he rode this after hours in the rain. Basically what that whole story adds up to is he should have known better, he was doing something wrong, it was his fault. Well, the fact was he wasn't a park employee. That was a lie, it was a lie. He had operated a ski lift at this neighboring ski resort a previous season. The park lied and said it was a park employee, both to sort of perpetuate this myth, this idea that if you got hurt, it was your fault, but also for more nefarious reason, that they never actually reported his death to the state. And they never reported claiming they didn't need to report his death because he wasn't a member of the general public, which was not true. And that was shocking, and especially because this idea that he was a park employee is still sort of part of the mythology of his death in the park's history. If you looked up this, this injury, uh, in articles that came out months ago, uh, you know, right before a movie came out, people were citing it as park employee, park employee, park employee. He wasn't a park employee. And that was um, kind of shocking to us. And and I think it goes to the fact of, of just the park in general. Like that was that whole mentality was uh, you kind of take your life into your own hands when you're here. That was that was the myth. That was the, the promise, the pleasure. The myth of Action Park was that you are in control. There, you know, where you control the action. That was sort of their slogan. Uh, the park was was designed to be something different from a typical amusement park, in the sense that almost every ride there, you are in some way 
in control of like uh, how fast you go, how you go. Some part of the experience. There's nothing there where you're strapped in like on a roller coaster and the ride does everything and you're just a passive observer. Everything there you're activating, you're driving, you're piloting. And that was done for two reasons. One was the owner wanted to create this different kind of immensely fun park and that would be the key draw. But the other was that he wanted it to be classified not as an amusement park, but as something he called a self-participation park, which was this new concept he had that he viewed as something closer to a ski resort. So he, in a ski resort, the liability structure is such that the skier assumes liability because skiing is viewed as an innately dangerous activity. Again, you should know your limits. If you get hurt, it potentially is your fault. You shouldn't have done something. And he wanted to apply the liability structure of a ski resort to an amusement park. And so he built these rides that were sort of akin to skiing or other dangerous or extreme sports in the sense that you very well could get hurt if you didn't know what you were doing or, or use them wrong. But he did it within the sort of candy-coated environs of an amusement park, the language of an amusement park, where people have this assumption of safety. And that's where things kind of got wrong, went wrong. And I, I think that if... if the general public would have perceived it as that. I don't, I don't see the park being as big as it was maybe. Yeah. I mean, people, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, people viewed it for what it was. I think there were people who definitely, I, I think it's also people didn't know their limits too. I mean, the park was, a lot of these rides were ones where people pushed them too hard and they got hurt. They went, they jump off a cliff and you don't know how to swim. You're going to be in trouble. Like that kind of thing would happen all the time. But then there's situations, I think the Larson case was one of them, where I don't think his brakes on his ride were working. I think he was using a sled where the brakes weren't working, and he flew off because of that. And that's what you know we call it unsafe at any speed. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. It doesn't matter how good you're doing what you're doing. If the ride's poorly designed or the equipment's faulty and you get hurt, right. it's really difficult to blame the rider. And I think a lot of that happened there. And I think the reputation of Action Park, that sort of lived on. And the reason people look back at it so fondly it's because it was viewed as this place where it would test your limits, push you to your limits, but you're sort of always in control. And I think that to some degree is a myth. Because I think a lot of the rides at Action Park were innately dangerous no matter how they were operated. Right. Okay, so let's look at a couple more rides. Yes. So that's, uh, that's Roaring Springs here. That's a tube ride. Uh, these things would get bunched up and people would just smash into each other. Fights would break out and people would bash into each other. It was also really poorly maintained. So there'd just be exposed bolts everywhere. So you'd be going down this water slide and a raft and just get like impaled or gashed oh on a big bolt, just kind of sticking out of the rubber. Not a fun, not a fun thing. That's the Colorado River ride. Colorado River ride was awesome. It was, okay. um, initially conceived to be something akin to a lazy river ride, sort of like a gentle day at the park on a, on a raft with a couple members of your family. But during construction, the owner decided that he wanted it to be a realistic simulation of class four rapids, like the actual Colorado River, uh, to the point where he didn't want there to be any lifeguards on duty, because as we say in the movie, he said, I believe the quote was, there aren't any lifeguards in the real Colorado River. <laughs> um, and so they built this thing, and it is point. cranked up. It's got a point. But these rapids were, this was the ride that was the scariest to me as a kid. It was really intense. I got, you just, you get knocked off of it. You just get blown off of it. And then like your raft would then be 50 feet in front of you. You'd lose your raft. You'd be stuck in the middle of this ride, people bouncing all around you while the rest of your family is who knows where without you. That kind of thing 
I remember getting knocked off and some guy just grabbing me and pulling me back on. Fights would break out in this ride all the time. People just smash into each other and just fist the flying just for no reason. Uh, this ride was nuts. It was just truly like, whiplash central. But you said this was this was probably your favorite ride? Yeah, it was the one I have the strongest memories of, the most memorable experience. This is the one I felt the most scared on. This is the one I feel like I was closest to drowning on. I got knocked off and was trapped underneath a raft for a couple minutes until somebody like reached under a raft and pulled me back up. Okay. All right. Oh, that right. By the way, that right. It's still open at the current incarnation of the park. It's not called Mountain Creek, um, but the current version of the Colorado River ride. So many people are smashing their faces into each other or into like a cave part of the ride that you now have to wear a face mask, like a catcher's mask, uh, in order to ride the ride. So you're in like a swimsuit and a catcher's mask if you ride it today. All right. That uh, does not sound comfortable at all. Super speed slide. Um, this looks like a kind, a genre of ride you might find at other places, which is like the really steep water slide. You've seen that before. This one is different, man. Uh, it was different. It was effectively a free fall. It was a free fall. You had no contact with the slide for the first couple seconds. Uh, they actually had to have a canopy net at the top to keep bodies from flying off. And uh, it earned a reputation for giving basically everybody who rode it an enema. So can you explain the differences? Because you see in the picture, there's four different slides. Some seem higher than the others. Yeah. Is it just different levels or, or, or what? There's there's two, two and two. So two super high ones, two medium high ones. The two really high ones, those are the crazy ones. Those are the ones at the canopy at the top. Those are the ones where you are free falling and your body has no contact with the slide for several seconds. You are just free falling until you hit it. And you hit it with such force that water is just kind of shoved up there. And, and, uh, on the other ones, I guess it's not, not as you're not going as fast. Then. Yeah. Not as high, not as steep. Uh, it's also, you can't really see in the photo there, but this ride is at the very top of the mountain. And so you stand at the top of that, you are looking down the mountain and it's even scarier than it should be because you're at the very top of a steep mountain looking down and you just feel like you're even higher as a result. Surf Hill. This one's fun. Um, so it's basically a big slip and slide in the mountain, a bunch of kind of parallel racing tracks. You get on a mat and you just like fly down racing each other head first down this foam mat. Uh, the thing about this ride, so first of all, the original concept was that you're going to be, what they wanted to be was you would jump off a cliff and the ride would catch you. The mat would catch you and you float down the mat the rest of the way. I couldn't find any place to build it like that so they got rid of the cliff part uh but what employees did again employees always had a way of kind of plussing up these rides to make them extra crazy is the far right lane they basically lift up the mat and just build a jump by stuffing trash cans other mats whatever objects they could find under there they built this jump and the jump got bit people just were flying serious hang time until a guest did indeed break his neck and on this, once that happens, once uh, because I had a hard time finding what got closed down and when it got closed down. So when when they yeah, broke that ride still that ride's actually that guy. I mean, they got rid of the jump. That ride's actually still open at Mountain Creek, the current incarnation. You can still ride that ride. So was there ever a point though after that happened where they were like, "Oh shit, we better shut this down for a minute"? And yeah, yeah, they got rid of the they they undid the big jump 
that they built. They basically, they built, the employees basically uh, Mac MacGyvered together this jump by stuffing a bunch of objects under the mat. Uh, once somebody breaks their neck, uh, that that's over. Yeah. And, and, but technically once again, where they say, well, that wasn't part of the original ride, I, I guess they can kind of take a little bit of liability away from them and say the employees did it, you know, without anyone knowing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who knows? But uh, this ride also is sort of noteworthy because it was really like lots of bikini tops would get kind of pulled down when people would go down headfirst on this thing. And uh, when the owner realized this, rather that he decided to take immediate action by building an observation deck nearby. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> so uh, there'd be a place to just kind of sit and a uh, so number of park executives, uh, they make that kind of their first stop in a day is they hang out by Surf Hill and just kind of see the, see the action. And this was this is one of the more, yeah, yeah. And Tarzan Swing was um, kind of one of the more legendary and famous rides of Action Park because it's one almost anybody could do, I think, and sort of experience all Action Park had to offer. It's atmosphere, it's chaos, it's whatever. It was a ride, it was, um, you know, you'd basically have a rope and swing into a big pool of freezing cold water. But the way it was designed is you'd have a basically a, a stadium of people watching you. The whole line would just be facing the pool cheering clapping just like seeing what people were doing it was a very exhibitionist ride and people would frequently wipe out they would uh, not be able to hold their body weight and they just slip and fall they'd slip immediately hit their head against the platform they'd start and all these things would happen people would wipe out face plant and then the whole crowd of people would just start chanting at them loser pussy whatever um so you have a crowd of screaming jersey people just berating you on this ride all day long all day long and and the water didn't help either when you hit the water um ice cold yeah ice and cold. and so i had read that that they think it was possible that it put a lot of people into shock that one person even they said uh possibly had a heart attack because of the yeah yeah i that's that's um i i know that instance in that story we didn't actually put that in the movie because that one proved a little bit difficult to fact check uh that that actually happened it's likely that somebody had a heart attack after going on that ride. Uh, I, you know, the cold water might have had a role in that, but yeah, that water was really, really cold, just really cold, and people would constantly go into shock. It was a pretty regular occurrence, and and not a lot of help from the lifeguards. No, unless you were really flailing, you're kind of on your own there, man. <laughs> yeah. Now, can we talk real quick about um, if you couldn't swim uh, on your bracelet, what they would do? Yeah, so if you had been saved earlier in the day because you clearly had no idea what you're doing and no business being in a water park, no business diving off a cliff, no business swimming, they would write the letter CFS on your bracelet. And that was code to other employees that you can't fucking swim. Uh, and so, you know, so if you had CFS in your bracelet, people knew, watch out. Uh, and that would happen all the time. People would go to things like the wave pool, not knowing how to swim, knowing they didn't know how to swim, just flailing around until they got saved to the point where like being saved and almost drowning. Some people thought that was kind of part of the experience. That was like part of the ride in some perverse way. It's kind of messed up. And I had also... Uh, read and heard that in that wave pool, which we'll take a look at that, 
that one in a second that had so many names in that wave pool that they would cram so many people in there that they had trouble uh, with people going under and they couldn't see some of the people that went under because there was so many people on top of the water. Is that, is that a true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a couple, it was really hard to tell when somebody actually needed help with the wave pool because everybody there is so rambunctious and horse. You don't know when somebody's actually flailing. Uh, the water itself was really murky. It was next to a hill that had a lot of muddy runoff. And it would just kind of uh, make the water kind of opaque. It was really hard to see below the surface. Add in some blood, uh, some orange spray from Alpine slide wounds, suntan lotion, a lot of fecal matter. Um, add in all these things, and it's really hard to see people below the surface. And it was just really crowded. And yeah, so the, the lifeguards of the wave pool, they had their hands full. There was one chair one lifeguard chair, one section of the pool, right where it's shoulder height. So like when the waves start, it's going over your head. A lot of people constantly being pulled out of there. They call that section the death zone uh, because that's where a lot of the saves occurred. And the chair, the lifeguard chair to overlook that, that was called the death chair. And when they had a new lifeguard, a way of kind of breaking them in, almost hazing them, showing them like this shit's for real. You got to pay attention. They placed them in a the death chair. Within the first 40 minutes, they'd have a half dozen saves. And then they knew like, oh, this is, this is real. So let me ask you, if they put that new person in the death chair, that was, of course, the best swimmers, right, to rescue people? No, it was it was where they put new employees sometimes. Um, I, mean, I imagine, like, uh, from a you know regular day-to-day basis, is probably either the best swimmer the, the, or the person who they were kind of trying to punish a little because it was such a hard job to do. Um, but also it was where they put new recruits as a way of kind of breaking them in. But the lifeguards of the way for really good lifeguards. You had to learn really quick. You're a lifeguard at a typical like summer pool place. You're almost never saving anybody. You're just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Nothing's happening. Um, Action Park wasn't like that. If you're a lifeguard at the way pool, you are constantly on guard, constantly on alert, constantly pulling people out. And they became probably some of the best lifeguards you can imagine just because like the on the job training was so intense just so intense and so here it is right here and and it doesn't look that full right now but i had, mm. had read some stuff that was just like jam-packed with people yeah it got busy it got really busy especially in the area where again the death zone where if you look at like pictures or, or video footage of it when it's kind of packed there's like a big clump of people kind of right in the middle. And that's that's where it was shoulder height. And when the waves would start, it would go over your head. So people would walk in kind of as much as you can while you can still stand. You know, so people people don't want to be too deep because you can't stand. So they're going as far as you can while you're still standing. And then the waves would come and it would just madness would ensue. Because suddenly these people who weren't, you know, they were standing, suddenly they can't stand anymore because the water's too high is what would happen. And so we talked about the death chair, the, the death section. They called it the grave pool. Was there anything else they called it? Uh, I think it's the only nickname they had for it, the grave pool. The grave pool. So let's, let's, since we're on that, let's talk about um, a couple of the deaths that happened there. Now, I want you to, and this is everything that I found, I want you to correct me if I'm uh, wrong on him. Uh, July 24th, 1982, 15-year-old boy reportedly drowned in the tide pool, uh, the tidal wave pool. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever you're reading is, is almost certainly correct. I don't have the exact 
ages, okay. dates, whatever else As, in front of me. But the only reason right. I ask that is because I had so far found that there were two deaths, but this one reports three deaths. Um, no, it says, okay, one of the deaths, and yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify the record right now. Okay. There were two deaths. Uh, the, the third death, it's often cited as being in the wave pool, is actually in the Roaring Springs area. Um, it's it's sort of been misreported in some places. But I uh, I, I spoke to employees who – I found the original newspaper articles and spoke to employees who were on duty that day. One of the deaths that's sometimes referred to as being a wave pool death was actually the Roaring Springs area. Okay. And that's why I wonder because I saw two, and then when this third one popped up, I'm like, wait, they, I heard two. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that that's what's crazy to me is that going back into that mythos and stuff of, well, someone drowned over here, but they actually just drowned in another part of the, like there was, it, it almost seems, I can't imagine doing the fact checking on this, how hard it would be to find some of this stuff uh, to see if it's real because well, there's so much. Out there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at old newspaper articles that happen like the next day, I think you get a pretty good sense of, the basics in terms of the who, what, where, when, why, right? Now, in terms of like other details, you got to talk to the people who are there. But in terms of who the individual was and where it happened and that they died and when, I think that stuff, that, that was actually pretty easy for us to verify by finding old newspaper articles and speaking to employees. Okay. Yeah. So um, some of these other things that we were talking about before we got on, just some of the some of the different rides that I don't necessarily have pictures for, but we had um, the diving cliffs and I heard that there was a yeah. lot of trouble at these diving cliffs. It was. So the cliffs were a cliff, you know, 23 feet. I think the highest one was, um, and you just 18, jump off and yeah, something like that. You just jump off a cliff, just jump off a cliff. And, uh, was, there, there weren't waiting turns. There was no like, I'm going to wait for this person to swim out of the way. You just dive and somebody else might jump directly on top of you. Happened all the time. It was um, it was a madhouse. And this area below was just kind of like a nice area to chill out and swim until somebody dove and landed on your head. Happened all the time. And so as far as I can see that they, they said that the bottom of the pool was eventually painted white so they could see any bodies on the bottom of the pool? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say, I mean, that's true, but also I don't think it's as crazy as it sounds. I think it just sort of people realize as like the water park became a little bit more evolved that, a, you know, higher contrast pool bottom makes it easier to see people. Uh, so that was going on, I think across the industry, uh, but it definitely happened very deliberately at the diving cliffs. And if you uh, look at old footage, it's not painted. And if you look at modern footage, it is, it's kind of interesting. So the Gladiator Challenge was kind of based on the American Gladiators? Uh, no, it was um, ripped off of the American Gladiators. It was based off the American Gladiators without uh, what we call permission. Okay. Um, in fact, there was uh, legal action taken by the actual American Gladiator folks. This was an attraction where uh, American Gladiators had just become very popular. And so the park owner in the park, they're just like, well, that sounds like a fun action park thing. So they basically got a bunch of like jacked up steroidal dudes from New Jersey, gave them names like Turbo, Nitro, and Fire. And then you as a patron of the park could joust these guys and like compete in like various activities, like fighting these jacked up steroidal dudes from Jersey. Um, that was an attraction. <laughs> so. and, and as 
far as I can see, was that extra? Because I know there were certain rides that were extra. Was yeah, that one I of those think I think that was extra. Yeah, I think I think that was extra. Ones that I know to be extra. The bungee jump, the bungee jump was extra. The slingshot was extra. The rhodium, which was a skydiving simulator, was extra. Uh, some of the motor world attractions might have been extra, and I believe the gladiator challenge was extra. But it didn't seem like it was too much extra. It was like five dollars to ride, or no. The, the typically when parks charge extra, it's it's because of capacity issues more than anything. I think there's only so many people you can kind of fit through that thing. Yeah. So uh, charging extra kind of keeps it from being a four hour wait. Sort of right. Idea. Uh, grass skiing. Yeah that that was that didn't last long. That is what it sounds like. You have skis going on grass. Uh, you, can, you can ski on all sorts of things. Uh, you're you're going you're pulling some deep cuts right now. These aren't ones that uh, typically make the cut when people talk about action park rides. I'm impressed here. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, the Kamikaze. Kamikaze was one of the first water slides. It was, um, it was basically just a water slide thrown on the side of a mountain, so that the bumps and shape of the mountain was the shape of the water slide, and it had very uh, low sides. So you'd hit these bumps and people just fly off this thing. Just fly off this thing all the time. Because it was just the shape of the mountain with like three inches kind of keeping you in. Fly off. The kayak experience. The kayak experience. Uh, this is a, a tragic ride. This was yeah. on a, a gentle uh, simulation of very gentle kind of rafting with, through rapids, or not rafting, kayaking through rapids. And they used some underwater fans uh, to kind of create these mild rapids. And there was uh, an electrical issue, a short or a loose wire or something like that. Gentleman either flips or steps out of his kayak, ends up being electrocuted and dying. Um, for a long time, if you looked up any photos or anything of the kayak space, there was almost none. It was only open for a very short period of time. We have a photo of this in the movie that somebody sent us at the last minute. And it's the only photo I'd ever seen of this ride in action. It was kind of like a, you know, if you're an action park historian, like a, a nice little holy grail kind of thing to find actual kayak experience footage or photos. And what's most amazing about the photo we have is the date on the photo is the exact same date the gentleman died, which wow. is kind of amazing. And yeah. so um, is it true that when that guy died that the park tried to fight it by saying that he didn't have any burns on the body and the, the medical examiner was like, because it was in water, there's no burns that happen on a body in the water. Well, they, the park, right to the end, uh, disputed the idea that there's any sort of problem with the ride. They claimed there's some sort of freak act of Godish accent. They claimed there was, they claimed the inspector said there was nothing wrong with the ride. Clearly, there was something wrong with the ride. I got electrocuted. I, uh, but that's what they claimed. Basically, to the end, there's nothing wrong with the ride. They ended up draining the ride shortly thereafter. They claimed not because there was any ride problems, but because people will be too intimidated by the ride, uh, which I guess is a fair assessment. Yeah, and and I think that there was um, actually there was uh, kind of an argument about how much wire was exposed and how it was exposed and how he touched. It. I mean, like it, it was crazy to read how the park treated these things instead of being like, "Oh wow, we are so sorry this happened." It seemed almost every time like they just came out and said, uh, "You're crazy. That couldn't happen. We don't know what you're talking about." Exactly. And and I yep. I thought. I thought that that was funny just because 
you know, in the like we talked about in these days and times, that would never happen. They would do everything they can to to pay the fa you know all that kind of stuff. Make sure the insurance is correct. And back then, just the wild wild west, which makes it even you know scarier that that people love this place. Pretty much, I think you got it. I mean, your parents took you there twice. <laughs> yeah, should have gone more though. Um, you know, it's amazing. Like people went there, and uh, everybody knew it was dangerous. People still went. Uh, they'll say in one breath, "That place was insane. It was so dangerous." And they'll say, "It was the greatest place in the world." And that's what's so fascinating about Action Park is how it can kind of be both these things. You know, um, I don't think it, and I think that's like what the '80s was. That's what growing up is. That's what nostalgia is. You know, like you look back at things and you think to yourself. I'm so glad I had that experience. I would do anything possible to keep my kids from having that same experience. You know, it's the idea that these things were so, so dangerous. You're so glad you did them. They were so memorable. They're so amazing. But you, you know, you never should have been able to do that. Never should have been allowed to do that. And one of the kind of mysteries you wanted to solve with this movie, one of the big questions that Chris Scott, my co-director, and I were really uh, setting out to solve was this idea that it became apparent to us that all these latchkey kids from the 80s, these feral, freewheeling, you know, home before dark kind of kids with no parental supervision, they're the same people who today have kids and are helicopter parents. Like, what is it that happened that turned these kids who grew up without any supervision into these micromanaging, highly supervised parents? What did they experience that they don't want their kid, that they would do anything to keep, what do they know about growing up that they want to make sure kids don't endure. And I think Action Park kind of explains a lot of it. This idea, this was a place that these people experienced, they endured, they survived. They're glad they did it. But if you said, would you send your own kid there? They go, hell no. And I think that kind of comes through in how parenting has changed. And 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 speaking of that, I remember growing up and I remember <clears throat> my, my neighbor and I across the street were best friends. And I remember one day we were playing darts with darts like outside you know, throwing him at a dartboard. Yeah. And I remember he thought it would be funny to throw a dart and it stuck in my neck. It hit me in the side of the neck and stuck in my neck. Remember lawn darts? Remember yeah. like, oh, like things like my, that? Lawn darts? Those, and I, we played them every time. I'm talking like eight years old, throwing these giant sharp darts yeah. in the yard. Lawn darts, lawn darts, action park and lawn darts. I think I tell like they, they go hand in hand. Um, even old slip and slides, those things are deadly. You didn't put enough water, you'd lose your skin. Um, like those things. Yeah. And, and, you know, and my um, parents, when I got the dart in my neck, I told my friend, I'm like, that was when other parents beat your ass for doing stuff. Like you got spankings from other kids' parents and, and it was okay. And I was like, my mom is going to beat your ass when I tell her that, you know, I, and I got home and told her, and she was like, well, you shouldn't have been playing with darts. I was like, Pfft. yeah, you know, and, and so you, it, it's, it's a different world. I think the eighties were probably the greatest decade ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's something else. It'll never come again, man. There's such a, like, it was such a, it was, it was the end of an era. Everything began to change, you know, cell phones, social media, cameras everywhere, GPS tracking, like all the, none of this stuff would be possible. Kids were really getting away with shit without anybody knowing back. Oh, then. absolutely. You were, you know, it's like, it's like in Stand By Me. Like, you want to, you guys want to see a body? Like, that's what life was like back then, you know? Yeah. 
So. It's uh, let, let's go into a couple more of these rides. The uh, slingshot. Yeah, sure. Slingshot was um, kind of a bungee, like you, you a, a seated bungee ride. So you'd be in like a chair with like one friend, and the thing would just shoot you up into the air. It was a, it was an add-on extra, like you pay extra for it. It right. was at the time, it probably to people who were nothing like that, like nobody had ever seen anything like that. So if you're a patron at Action Park that probably looks like the most frightening, scary thing there, but it's probably actually the safest. Really? Yeah, nobody ever got hurt on that thing. I mean, that's, that kind of right now is somewhat commonplace. It's like a boardwalk attraction, right. you know, like the like the seated bungee ride. Yeah, there's not too much to say about that. Another one I would never get on. I would never get on that thing. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the skate park was interesting to me. So they did a skate park, but it didn't seem to survive very long. No, before they called the place Action Park, uh, they started throwing a couple attractions. I think they had like a petting zoo at one point. Um, they had a skate park. They had a um, roller skating too. They had a bunch of these things. And back then, the park was called, depending on your source, either uh, Vernon Summer, Vernon Valley Summer Park or Vernon Valley Fun Farm, uh, depending on what source you, you look at. And that was before they called it Action Park. And they're kind of experimenting with a couple of these sort of things, trying to figure out what do people want to do in the summer? They want to go to a skate park and they kind of eventually uh, stumble into what became action park. Uh, the space shot. Space shot was late. Um, there's not too much to say about that ride other than that was designed by a company that Gene was actually a founder of as one of his entrepreneurial hustles was as a ride designer. I can't even, I can't remember how that ride operated. It wasn't open long, and there weren't many crazy stories about it. That was a little bit late into the into the park. Yeah, the best that I could figure out from it was it's like a free fall. Like you go up, like the ride that I was talking yeah. about, like the dog thing, when you go up to the top and then you free fall down, like you're. Yeah, and I and I think they built that ride elsewhere. The like you know like Gene had a company that designed rides. That built that. That was one of the rides they built, and I think they brought it to a couple other places too. But it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't super action parky in terms of like crazy stuff happening. Uh, the super speed water slides. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. That was a straight down, guys. So, in in the stuff that I read about it, they called it Geronimo Falls. Is that different eras? So it, it also sometimes called H two O no, depending on what year you're talking about. Okay. So. Throughout, um, it was mostly called Super Speed Slides. The one era is called Geronimo Falls. Today, it's called H2O No, although it's been rebuilt and is nowhere near as crazy as it was. And, of course, going back to, once again, that that, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen anymore. I mean... No, not they, like that. You're not free-falling. <laughs> right. So, is there the any... Ride that, yeah. that, uh, I, I got quite a few of them to you. Is there any rides that, that stick out in your mind that, that I forgot on the list? No. I mean, there, every ride there was, was unique and crazy in its own way. I mean, we could have... It was really fun to do is look at, like, an old park map. There were... You know, at its peak, Action Park was big. It's 75 rides and attractions. And, uh, you know, in the movie, we talked about a number of them, but there's a bunch more. And many of them were wild or weird or wacky, but don't have any crazy stories with them. And some of them are just like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like there's one thing called the human maze, just a maze, kind of get lost in. Um, it just A lot of them were really just kind of like a half dash, just kind of thrown together by teenagers and you got what you got kind of stuff. It, it's just, uh, it, it's so funny to me how 
that the the teenagers and it, I think it really comes across in in your film. The teenagers really ruled this place. They talk about the the shack that's on top of the hill where they put like their backpacks and everything. Yeah. And everyone just smoked weed and had sex in there. And yeah, and it, yeah, know, that was one of the spots. It was that in the control room for the wave pool was the other big one. So people would go into like in into the structure that would like house the controls for the wave pool, and that was a place a lot of uh, teenage hanky panky would occur as well. And so with that, it is, that seems very unsafe to me, first off, that, that that's going on in the control room. Uh, that, that seems right for uh, something happening and uh, <laughs> ending up getting someone hurt even more. For sure. Um, let's talk about a couple of the deaths. Um, we, mm -hmm. we spoke about a couple with the kayak and things like that. But uh, I want to go into... Um, kind of the deaths that surrounded the park, but, but weren't part of the park. Now I read that there was a tour bus that overturned, caught fire, like six people died, like 47 people were injured, but the park said, well, it didn't happen in the park. It's, it, it's not on us. Well, it didn't happen in the park. Um, that, that one though was, I think really hard on a lot of the employees because it happened very close to the park. And um, I talked to one park employee who told me that was the longest day of his life because he got this phone call that there had been an accident and there's numerous fatalities from a tour bus there. And he doesn't know, you know, which of the tour buses coming in that is. So he's having to just basically call in and see like what bus never showed up today and then call people and say what happened. Um, and just imagine, you know, like what that must have been like as a young man. Right. And this kind of thing really, I think, hits home one of the lesser discussed issues of a place like Action Park. And that's what it's like to kind of grow up working at a place like this, because the employees were very young. So I guess like 14, 15 years old. And they're around just an enormous amount of chaos, injury, and sometimes death. And they're seeing things that we don't think of as things that like a young person should be seeing in, in real life, experiencing things that we don't think of as things a young person should be experiencing a lot of, things that are surely traumatizing to some degree. Right. And they're, it's in their face. And what does that do to them? And, you know, it's wild. I mean, I think that's, that's really something we need to think about when you think about this place. Yeah. So I was able to pull up a map of uh, Action Park so we can kind of take a look at it. I'm going to make it full screen so you'll get a big picture of it. And if anything stands out to you or you want to talk about any specific part, I would love to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Now, let me see in that scale there. Let me see. Oh yeah, these maps. It is what it is. Yeah, fun little map there. I mean, we got the speedboats are fun. The speedboats were, you know, motorboats. Of course, the pond that you drive a motorboat around was, uh, you know, leaked gas and oil, but also snakes everywhere. Uh, and so it was the absolute worst place to work. If you're an employee stationed as a lifeguard, the speedboats, you are being punished for something, typically. And you'd be just pulling people out of this murky, oily, gassy, snake-infested pond. Doesn't sound like fun. Speaking of that, I want to ask. I, now, I had seen and heard that um, the worst place to work probably was the tanks. Not the worst. Okay, I think the speedboats are worse. So the reason what you're hearing about the tanks, tanks were basically like you're driving this little tank and you're shooting tennis balls and you hit the target 
the at another it's like a game of like laser tag you know you hit a target on another tank it stops and spins around for a minute and then picks up again um employees would constantly have to walk around that place to like fix broken down tanks and things like that and they just get pelted by tennis balls not fun I'd personally pick that over jumping into an oily and snake-filled pod, but that's just my opinion. True. Now, let me ask, because this one's going to sound crazy, but in talking to you about this park, nothing seems really crazy anymore. Was there a point where the tennis balls got set on fire? Yes. Um, oh so uh, a guest figured out that uh, stole a can of gasoline or something, poured it all over tennis balls, lit them on fire, started shooting them. There you go. Fireballs from the tanks. So it's a real thing that really, ha I when I saw that, I'm like, there's no way. Yeah, yeah. We spoke to the security guard who had to kick that gentleman out of the park that day. So, yeah. Uh, the people that you talk to that work there, that security guard is hilarious in the movie. Uh, just yeah, it's great. That yeah. he's talking about. Um, so going back to, you know, talking to the people that you talked to, was everyone like, I know that you had hundreds of people that you talked to, but was everyone willing or did you find a couple of people that were like, no, nah, I don't want to talk about it. Or was it such a big thing that they're like, no, I've waited years to talk about this to someone. There was a lot, mostly the latter. Um, you know, people, some people we filmed just in like New York and New Jersey and people driving like six, seven hours. They were so eager to come talk to us and, really? and meet with us and tell their stories. Yeah. People really wanted to tell their stories. And there's some people who were a little cagey about some topics. You know, there's some people who would be very open about the injuries, the rides, the deaths. But the minute you start talking about the owner, they would just be like, I can't talk about him. And he was clearly up to some shady business. So then you get a sense about like, okay, this person will talk about this. But then you just ask the next person the same questions and you get what you want. <laughs> you know, So I'm like, okay, well, there must be something good. If this guy won't talk about it, let me make sure I ask another person that same question until you find somebody who will talk. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it. I think if somebody else had just approached this topic and tried to make this movie, they probably would have run into a lot of resistance. I'd spent a lot of time meeting the people of Vernon, meeting former park employees, earning their trust and talking to these people in order to open these doors and make this happen. So it wasn't an instant process. It really was about understanding this world this universe and the contours of it and who knows what and who's willing to say what well so in saying that where you said some people would be openly talking about the injuries then you would get to the owner and they would clam up can you give us something yeah. that people would clam up that you had to go to someone else to talk to them about yeah i mean well like literally one person and he's even in the movie so the former director of security he literally says at one point, and we have it in the movie, like, um, if you're going to ask me about Gene, right. don't. Yeah, he's like, like, just don't. Like, okay. Right. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, I ask other people, and I say, oh, yeah, Gene had a machine gun in his desk. We all knew. Gene had a panic button, and nobody knew where it went to. Gene had mob ties. Gene had this. You know, like, other people were very willing to talk. Um, I think if he was still alive, nobody would have said this stuff because I think people were, and to some degree still are afraid of him. Uh, he was a very powerful member of the local community. And I think that it's only the, you know, he died in 2012. And I think that those eight years have created enough distance where people are more willing to talk now than they might've been even a couple of years ago. So does that transfer forward to his son? 
His son is very open about some things. First of all, I say his son did not participate in this movie. The footage I have of the son uh, was footage I had filmed interviewing him for prior projects. Uh, but he chose not to participate in the movie, which is his right. Um, his son is very open about some things about the park. He has a book that just came out. It's actually a great read if you're interested in the history of action parking. He's very open about a lot of things. I think he kind of has the perspective you would expect of somebody who it was their childhood and is their family. Um, I don't I don't fault him for that at all. Um, and I think that I, I brought a different perspective being sort of an outside third party to the to the topic. Uh, but his son is surprisingly open about the shenanigans and the wackiness and whatever else. But um, it's clearly somebody who loves and respects his father a lot, I'll say, at the same time. And so when you see, you know, when it when it gets closed down and then it goes through some other investors and then it ends up back in the Mulva Hill family. Yeah, 2010, just two years before Gene died, he repurchased the park, um, which is an amazing sort of end to, you know, end to it all. You know, he lost the park. 96, it shuts down at the end of the 96 season, goes bankrupt. Um, 98, it gets purchased by Intrawest, this big company that owns Whistler Mountain. Uh, changes owner's hand. They, they take out most of the cool rides. No more looping water slide and all that kind of stuff. Changes hands a couple times. Mobile Hill family takes it over in 2010. And they had it for four or five years. Uh, and then they lost it again. Uh, changed hands a couple more times. Now it's in the hands of a guy named Joe Hessian, who's awesome. Uh, big fan of Joe. Um, he currently owns the park and he's in very able hands. If you ask me, if you're in the New Jersey area and you're looking for like a good water park escape, go to Mountain Creek is what it's called now. Go to Mountain Creek. You can still jump off the cliffs. You can still ride the Colorado River ride, although you have to wear a face mask. You can still go down Surf Hill. Up until a couple of years ago, you could still go into Tarzan and Cannibal Falls. Those just shut a couple of years ago. But it's, it feels, if you've seen the movie, you'll feel like you're walking through history. Like you'll recognize a lot of the stuff in there. It's kind of a fun experience. Now, is it true that they are redoing a Cannonball Loop? No. Um, in 2014 or 15, they announced that they were going to build a new one. Uh, and they actually found a person who's going to build it. And I spoke to somebody who worked at the park, Bill, who's in our movie, who tested out this new version of the park. He like went and wrote down the prototype of it. Uh, it was never, but they never ended up bringing it to the park and building it at the park. And soon after that, the uh, park was sold and the new owners didn't seem to have any interest in building a looping water slide. So, so in your personal opinion and all the research you've done, does it seem like a good idea to you? A cannibal loop? No, it's a terrible idea. Um, it, the human body doesn't work like that, and <laughs> physics doesn't work like that. It's it's a good idea in uh, from a comedic perspective. It's a good idea from an absurdist perspective, from a modern art perspective. But it's a terrible idea from a ride perspective. I mean, a good attraction should be able to be safe and enjoyable to literally millions of people going through it again and again and again for years. Cannibal loop is not that no two people going through that thing have the same experience and the chances of you not making it through all the way are very high and chances of getting hurt or kind of messed up are, are also very high uh it, it fails all the tests except the one that makes it work for some people which is the holy cow i can't believe this is a real test yeah i i think that they would just you know take that person who made it through the ride and bend the physics to them. 
it's their fault if they can't make it through the loop. Right? Exactly. That's what does. If you can't make it through a cannibal loop, you're doing something wrong. So. <laughs> and that should yeah. be like their theme. Like if you can't make it through this water park, well, you're a pussy. You know, I, I think that that should have been maybe a logo. Basically. Yeah. Basically. So I got a couple more myths before we finish up um, that I want to see if you can clear up for me. Um, mm -hmm. You were saying that other than the uh, tour bus that was overturned, there was another big uh, accident involving um, that. Yeah. I was talking about um, right outside the park, an oil tanker, gas tanker uh, overturned uh, an accident. And the gentleman, the driver was in the cab stuck underneath the tanker and they couldn't get him out. They couldn't use the jaws of life because it would have created a spark and that could have exploded the oil. And uh, he was in a bad state and he knew he was going to die, basically. And so all the EMTs can do, they can't get him out, is basically give him morphine through the window and take his last words. And... 15-year-old employees, 16-year-old employees are seeing all this go down, no, seeing this gentleman who's about to die. And that, to me, like when I talk to people who were there as teenagers who are now older, telling these stories, I'm like, that to me really hits home what this place really, I think, did to shape a generation of people, particularly people who work there, what it did to their expectations of life and mortality and normalcy and how, um, how strange a place this was. <laughs> I will definitely agree with you there. Uh, so I read that a, um, a 55 year old man was riding uh, just, it just says a water slide. There wasn't a necessary name to it. And it said that he sustained a fractured hip and then he died from complications like three weeks later. Have you heard anything about that one? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. There was all sorts of sort of incidental deaths that occurred. There was a kid who, had hemophilia who tripped and ruptured a spleen and died in the park. Um, but I don't think it's really fair to like attribute such things right. to, to the park. I mean, you had a million people a year going through the park. Right. Shit happens. And there, there, there was a fair amount of just like stuff that's going to happen because of the sheer number of people and the nature of what they're doing. And then there are ones that were the result of clear negligence. So, you know, thin line. And then we, we, briefly spoke about uh, the other myth that's going around is that a guy suffered a heart attack uh, doing the Tarzan swing. I don't think it's a myth. I, I mean, it's one though that if you actually kind of source back the reporting, it's just very thin. Um, you know, there it's, it's, and so it, like, you know, one thing's in our movie to be a little bit more rock solid, um, but I, I don't doubt it actually happened. I just didn't feel comfortable putting in because I didn't have enough backup. Right. So let's talk about that real quick. Um, how do you go about finding all of this stuff? Um, like you said, you, you, if you find the newspaper, that's the next day, you're pretty sure that's going to be good if you find it a little later. So how do you go about finding all these things for the documentary where you can fact check where other than talking to people that were there? Yeah, it's a mixture of primary and secondary sources. It's, a mixture of first-hand experiences from people who were there. And I spoke to people who were there during the entire reign of the park who worked in positions where they had intimate knowledge of a lot of the injuries in particular and were involved with a lot of the injuries. I mean, I don't think any of the deaths that occurred, I didn't speak to somebody who was in a management position at the park who, who had to deal with um, the, the repercussions or the aftermath of them in some way. Um, and then you have newspaper articles. Like if there's an article in the newspaper the next day, 
saying that this person got injured on this ride at this time, I think it's a fair thing to say that probably happened. Did you ever run across the problem of people trying to bullshit you where you knew they were trying to bullshit you while you were gathering all of your stuff? I don't think people were trying to bullshit me. I think um, I have a good sense of that. I think it's a good question. Uh, um, I mean, I like I've been interviewing people for a long time. I don't I don't really I don't think I get easily kind of trapped into that kind of stuff. Um, maybe people are trying to bullshit me, but you don't just put something in off of somebody if something sounds like bullshit you really make sure it's real you know it's but i mean action park was such a crazy place but all these things are crazy but they're like you know there are hundreds of employees at any given time like anything that happened lots of people saw it wasn't right. hard to find two people who could verify something for you if you needed to and and to take that question a little further i think even if they maybe not bullshitting you do you think that that's the way they remember it? Cause it was such a crazy place. Maybe that's the way it stuck yeah, in the brain, but it was so crazy, but it was almost, but it, but it actually was that crazy. And I think, so here's the thing, like people say like all these stories feel made up. The truth is there's really no reason to make up any stories about action park. If you spent any amount of time there, you saw things that were so crazy that you have to have like one hell of an imagination to make up something cooler, better, weirder, wilder than that. You don't need to make up things about Action Park. You just say what you saw. Um, and there's no reason to bullshit. There's no reason to make things up. Like, I, I, I would be shocked if an employee was like, I'm going to mess with this guy right. by making up stories because the things they actually saw were so wild and so weird. Um, and also, like, I'm, you know, I check things. So, yeah. Uh, favorite person to interview? Did you have a favorite? Um. Well, I mean, Chris Gethard's interview was a piece of genius. It was it was the best interview I've ever encountered in my life as a journalist. Um, I mean, I, I think there's an argument to be made that just playing his interview for 90 minutes would have been a better movie than our movie. <laughs> but, <laughs> he's pretty funny. Uh, he's amazing, yeah. Um, and he was amazing. And, and then Esther Larson, the mother of, of George Larson, who lost his life at the park, her interview, I think, really grounded our movie and allowed us to... Uh, ensure that we represented the darkness of it, the truth of it all, and allowed the movie to sort of work. The movie doesn't work if it's just people sharing stories. It doesn't work because the truth is a lot of people, they get hurt there and some people died there. And all of that needs to occur. All the stories you hear, all the wackiness, all the craziness occurs within the shadow of a real human toll. And without the ability to express that human toll, our movies trash it's garbage it, it shouldn't exist like we really needed to express that and she allowed us to do that right and that's that's kind of what i wanted to say about her she uh kind of humanized the whole situation she brought it back to earth because the story is this legendary wild wacky place and a lot of the you know earlier parts of the movie that kind of feel like real fun it was really us trying to put you into the minds it, it's not just about saying this stuff happened it's about making sure you understand why people wanted to go there. We wanted to make you feel like an amped up 1980s kid who's hyped to go to this amusement park. Um, to really gain the mentality to show you why this place is popular and then to take you back down to earth and say, here's the truth of it all. And she allowed us to do that because otherwise you just have the myth. You don't have the truth. So two more questions, then we'll get into the trailer and kind of wrap this whole thing up. Yeah. I want to speak. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm passing out. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> These will be quick questions, but uh, I, I sure. wanted to talk about them. Uh, they advertised to a high Hispanic population, but no one spoke Spanish at the park. There was no... Yeah, they, they advertise all over the Tri-State area. Um, very aggressive radio and television ad campaign, newspapers too. And they did, they advertised to a lot of um, Spanish-speaking populations, but they didn't bother to put warning signs about any of the dangers or proper procedures for rides in Spanish, nor did a typical 15-year-old Vernon High School employee who was working at the park speak a, a lick of Spanish. Um, and so a lot of the... Uh, not subtle and non-subtle points about safe operation of these rides or it would have been lost on those people going to the park. So, uh, you know, and, and, and I kept you up. So I want it cause you were way ahead of me on time. So, um, let, let's show the trailer real quick and then we'll wrap this up. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Nothing in the world like Action Park. Baby, let me take you, baby. Action Park. Action, Action Park. The story of Action Park is a true crime story. As you entered the park, you saw this thing. And you're like, this is real. The engineering behind this, if there was any engineering, was just nuts. Build it higher, make it faster. People control the action. Combine that with liquor and anything goes. There were no rules. For a lot of kids, that was heaven. And if you couldn't swim well, yikes. I don't think you can understand a place like Action Park if you don't understand the kind of minds that build it. A lot of people wish they could ignore rules. Gene actually did that. Nobody would give him insurance, so he created his own insurance company and then insured himself. It did bring sometimes a criminal element. I don't know how many people died at Action Park, but it wasn't just one person. Electrocuted. Decapitated. Fractured vertebrae. Impaled on the bowl. Had a heart attack. Nobody should ever be the second person to die in a wave pool. Close the wave pool. The action never Once again, going back to Chris's interview, it, no one should ever be the second person to die. He's he's great in the movie. Guys, you got to go check this movie out. I bought the HBO Max app just to watch this movie. That's it. I haven't watched anything else on it but this movie. It is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best documentaries you'll ever see. It is hilarious, horrifying, all of the things that you want from your movies, especially in this time of uh, being isolated and being at home, you can watch this thing and it is an absolute blast from beginning to end. Chris, is there, uh, excuse me, Chris, I keep saying his name. Seth, is there anything that you want to promote before we get out of here? No, movies out now on HBO Max. So free trial, check it out. Yeah. And uh, I'm telling you guys, it is absolutely worth it. I, I will tell you that I spent a whole bunch of time trying to find it. I had Hulu with HBO. I couldn't find it on there. I looked at the HBO app, uh, app. I couldn't find it there. So I just went and bought the HBO Max. It's definitely worth it, guys. For the whole month that you'll pay for, this movie is absolutely worth it. So Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you are welcome back anytime when you have some new projects out. I had a blast talking to you about this. This place is absolutely bananas. It's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Guys, check us out on Facebook at the Dads That Drink group. 
on Instagram at double.speak.studios, on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ. We will catch you on the next one. Next Friday, we have Daryl Davis, who's going to come in and do a speaking engagement and play music from when he traveled around in the United States. So we will see you guys next Friday, 9.30 p.m. That's Seth. I'm DJ. This is the Dads at Drink. We'll see you on the next one. Bye.